0: The History Channel Original Podcast.
1: History This Week. February 14th, 1934. I'm Sally Helm. Adelaide Hall is backstage, waiting. She's been in this position many times before, so she's familiar with all the sounds. The orchestra tuning the audience murmuring, people calling out to their friends who have come in late to say, I'm sitting over here. She knows all the feelings, too. Anxiety, anticipation, the shift that happens in your body when you step out before a room full of people who have come here just to watch you sing. Hall in 1934 is already famous. She's performed in Paris at the Moulin Rouge. She's sang at the Chicago World's Fair. She's appeared on Broadway and recorded with the great Duke Ellington. She's taken a 30-week tour to all the major cities of the United States. And she has performed many times here in New York City. After a show starring Hall at the famous Manhattan jazz venue, The Cotton Club, a reviewer wrote that Hall sang the song Stormy Weather so well that although you've heard it everywhere, you'll find new and deeper moods of blue in it. Can go on. Everything
2: I had is gone. it.
1: But tonight's show at the Apollo Theater in Harlem will be different because of the audience. In 1934, the Cotton Club filled its stage with African-American stars like Adelaide Hall, but only allowed white patrons to buy tickets. It's the same for Broadway shows. But the Apollo Theater has just recently opened its doors to Black audiences. When Adelaide Hall steps out on stage tonight, she'll be part of an important shift, the beginning of the end of segregated audiences. After the show, Hall receives her usual rave reviews. One said her singing and dancing was a thing of beauty and joy. Her performance helps put the Apollo Theater on the map.
2: If we think about Harlem being the capital of Black America, and and, and if we think about the Apollo being the heartbeat, then we really sit at the nucleus of what is creating the culture of America.
1: Today, a roundtable discussion with the Apollo's resident historian and its executive producer. How did this 88-year-old theater with 1,500 seats help catapult some of the nation's most well-known performers to stardom. And how did it change American music? Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Let's start with some introductions. And I'm wondering, the two of you work together, right?
0: Yes. Yes. Yes.
1: Could you introduce each other?
0: I would love to. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Billy Mitchell, but I'd like to introduce you to our senior executive producer at the world-famous Apollo Theater, <laughs> the incredible, the fabulous, the very intelligent, uh, Camila Forbes.
2: Thank you, Mr. Mitchell. <laughs> uh, well, yes, I am Camila Forbes, but I have the honor and the pleasure to introduce you to Mr. Billy Mitchell, better known as Mr. Apollo because he is our in-house historian and most beloved member of the Apollo
1: family. Oh, amazing. Mr. Mitchell, I want to start with you. Can you tell me a little bit about your first personal memory of the Apollo?
0: Well, I was born and raised in Mount Vernon, New York. I am one of eventually 14 children that my mom had. And when I was 12, we were evicted from our place in Mount Vernon. So we moved to the South Bronx. And I became the oldest member at home at age 15. And one day, uh, we had no food in the house. My mother sends me down to Harlem, where she was born, to borrow some money from her cousin, who just happened to live on 126th Street, which is where the backstage door of the Apollo beer is located. And while standing there, the door opens up, and Frank Shipman, who was the owner of the Apollo back then, he opens up the door and says, hey, kid, what are you doing back here? You want to make some money? And that question frightened the heck out of me because I didn't know where this guy was going with that question, right? So I started backing up, getting ready to run. And he says, calm down. I'm not going to mess with you. I'm asking you, do you want to make some money by running to the store for people who are inside rehearsing for a big concert? And they're going to need someone to go get their coffee and their newspaper and their shoes shined, et cetera. And if you run these errands, kid, they'll give you a little tip. And I started running errors that day, and that was my first introduction to the Apollo Theater. That was in 1965.
1: Ms. Forbes, what was your first memory of the Apollo? Where did you grow up first? So I grew up
2: in Chicago, Illinois. Mm -hmm. So my first introduction to the Apollo was actually, you know, through the television.
0: Tonight, from the village of Harlem in New York City.
2: It was showtime at the Apollo. The
0: world-famous Apollo Theater, where dreams are born and legends are made.
2: I remember I loved staying up at night to watch the competition show, to see the hottest, newest performers, but also to see the amateurs. But one of my favorite parts of Showtime is when they would do the Apollo moment, right? An Apollo history moment, where it was through these like five-minute segments that I really got a window into the lore and the legend, which is the Apollo theater of the history and all of the amazing artists that walked across the stage, that made their name there.
1: Mr. Mitchell, I know history is your area, so I want to ask a little bit about the Apollo before this big moment in 1934. What would people who walked into the Apollo have seen and heard there? What was going on?
0: Well, the building was built in 1914, actually, and it wasn't called the Apollo Theater back then. The building was originally a burlesque house known as Hertick and Siemens New Burlesque Theater and it was segregated. African-Americans weren't allowed to enter the building to sit down and see shows or perform on the stage or to work there. You know, Harlem was different back then. Harlem was basically Irish on the west side, Italian-Latino on the east side, and where the Apollo Theater is now located, it was all Dutch and Jewish. But uh, during that time, a lot of African-Americans were moving into Harlem as part of the Great Migration. It was the Harlem Renaissance and Home had been the cultural uh, mecca of America at that time with art and, and, and intellect and activism. And after the burlesque theater called and to was shut down by the then mayor, mm. Fiorello LaGuardia, the owners opened the theater as the 125th Street Apollo Theater. And they says, OK, we're going to now allow African-Americans to integrate with our white patrons to work here and to perform there. That's how that transformation came from being a segregated burlesque house to a place that highlighted African-American town.
1: Ms. Forbes, I want to bring you in here for a moment. Why is that change so important in the context of this time and place? We're saying Harlem in the 1930s, just after the Harlem Renaissance.
2: Yeah, so that moment of integration was really about a space of ownership. I lived here, my culture is being born and created here, and this is for me. African-Americans were moving and mobilizing around the country and in urban centers like New York, urban centers like Chicago, Detroit, not only moving, but there was a really strong middle class being born. And Harlem, amongst that all, because it's Harlem, because it's New York City, the African-American mobilization really became the beacon for the nation. The capital of Black America is, is what a lot of times, you know, Harlem is referred to as. So it was really important what went on in Harlem, what went on in Harlem culture, and then consequently, what happened at the Apollo
1: Theater. I mean, it's obviously years later that you first walk into the Apollo Theater yourself, Mr. Mitchell. But in those sort of early days in the 30s, can you give me a sense of what it would have been like to be in the room as an audience member?
0: I can only imagine because I wasn't around back then. But, you know, people would get dressed up to come to see a show at the Apollo Theater. They would... Jazz was starting to become very, very popular, so you saw the likes of the Benny Carter Orchestra and Duke Ellington. If I come close while we're dancing,
2: I get a slap on the wrist.
0: They could sit down, they could dress up, they could feel good, they could see people that look like them in a theater that previously no longer allowed African Americans in it. And can you imagine, this all started on January 26, 1934. 89 years, the building's been called the Apollo Theater. The first production that was done that night was called Jazz a la Carte. It featured the Benny Carter Orchestra. It featured Aida Ward. It featured these incredible showgirls, dancers, and it was hosted by Ralph Cooper. Now, Ralph Cooper, aside from being an actor, had one of the top radio shows in New York at the time, which was a talent show. It was called the Harlem Amateur Hour Radio Show. And Ralph Cooper and Frank Schippen worked out a deal to bring that radio show slash talent show to the stage of the Apollo, and it became known as Amateur Night at the Apollo.
1: Ms. Forbes, can you tell me, what is Amateur Night at the Apollo, mm. and why is it such an institution? Mm.
2: So Amateur Night is the longest-running <laughs> uh, talent show. You know, predates American Idol, predates Star Search, predates all of those. And it's it, it's ultimately... It's a talent show, but it's one under which the judges are the audience.
0: We're going to bring back all our contestants. All right. We'll give it up for PRS7. You like? The entire audience judges you. If the audience members like you, they applaud you. If they don't like you, they literally will boo you, you know? Like Mr. Mitchell
2: said, people come to boo for sure. It's all part of the fun of it. But I also think what's really remarkable about Amateur Night is that the countless number of artists that have been discovered there, people that were given opportunity. You don't need an agent to get on, you know, dean, a manager. You come in and you sign up. Mm-hmm. And so if you've got that bit of burning desire and or talent, You can perform on one of the largest stages, which is the Apollo stage, that so many of our major American performers have performed on.
0: And incidentally, Ella Fitzgerald was born on amateur night at the Apollo. The first year it opened up, Ella Fitzgerald was one of the first female to win the competition. I'd love for you to tell me that story. How does that happen? How does the night unfold? Well, Ella, of course, she had to audition. And uh, throughout that night, uh, there were other people that were performing particularly these two sisters that were dancers that Ella was scheduled to compete against as a dancer. And Ella thought they were so much better than her that she went to Ralph Cooper and changed her mind about competing and dancing against them. So he says, well, what else can you do? Come on, we got a show to run. She said, well, my friends and family tell me I can sing a little bit. So she went out there and she started singing the song and the crowd just loved her. And after doing Amateur Night, she started being the lead vocalist for the Apollo Theater Band, the Chick Webb Band. At a very young age, maybe 17, 18 years old.
2: You're undecided now, so where
1: are you going to do? Amazing. Ms. Forbes, have you thought about that famous Ella Fitzgerald performance? Oh my gosh, all the time. <laughs> what do you imagine? Well, you know, you think about it, right? She's performing in front of
2: 1,500 people, having to like switch her act in the last minute. I mean, that's a lot of guts. I, it really proves, you know, what you're made of. But it also proves to me how welcoming the audience can be at the same time, hmm. right? And that's something special that you don't always see that kind of call and response activation when it all works well, right? That happens with the audience. I mean, we talk about the booze, but also they're, they're with every single note, every single moment, every single tap, every single step right there with you. That doesn't happen at every theater. Right? Audience sits back, waiting to be entertained, versus audience leaning forward, you know, to root for you, to cheer you on, to let you know when you've made a right move and will let you know when you made a wrong. And that's, that's participation in another level.
1: Mr. Mitchell, can you tell me about some of the sort of rituals and traditions that have defined the Apollo
0: One of the traditions that still exists to this day is that when the contestant is introduced to walk out on stage to perform, they must stop and rub the tree of hope. That tree stump, which it really is, was once located on 131st Street and 7th Avenue, directly across the street from one of the most famous theaters in Harlem back then, the Lafayette Theater. And people would gather around that tree, hoping that someone from the Lafayette would notice them and offer them a job. And before you know it, People started getting hired, and they thought that the reason they were hired is because the tree that they were standing around was giving <laughs> off good luck. People were very superstitious. And then there were plans to fix the sidewalk. Well, in order to do that, the tree must be cut down. But Ralph Cooper and other city officials decided to take the stump of the tree off and bring it to the Apollo Theater so that on amateur night, when the contestants were called to come out to perform, they can now just rub the stump for good luck hoping that the audience receives them well mm-hmm. and they don't get booed.
1: We've been talking about it through time, but I really imagine that some of the emotions on Amateur Night would be sort of timeless, would be the same yeah. now as they were Completely. in the 30s and 40s. Completely. Can you tell me about those sure. emotions, Ms. Forbes? I can sort of see you almost yeah. starting to feel them. What does it feel
2: like? I mean, it's, it's, it, it's electric in the room. I love being in the room with the audience, but I also love being backstage with the artists. The artists come from far and wide to compete every week. It's a weekly show that happens every single Wednesday, has always happened every single Wednesday. It's 1934. And there was, I remember a couple of years ago, we had a sax player who moonlighted as a bartender um, out of Ohio. And Tuesday night, sure enough, right after you get off a shift, at 3 a.m. in the morning, he was driving across country to New York to make sure that he was there. For the amateur night to compete on the stage.
1: On Wednesday. On Wednesday. So he does this overnight drive He this
2: overnight drive, exactly. Wow. And then wait to see if he advances to the next week. And for him, this was his big opportunity, right? This was his big opportunity to live out his dream, performing in front of an audience, you know, as an artist. And that's, that's a kind of really exciting energy that's happening backstage. You know, it's just brimming with possibility.
1: Possibility that, over the years, has started so many performers on the path to fame and success. After the break, we'll talk about some more of them how they got their break in Harlem, or how, after they made it big, they just had to play the Apollo. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: I kind of just want to broaden it out and ask you both, what are some sort of key moments, anecdotes, really notable performances that have happened at the Apollo the stories that sort of define the place to you over time.
0: Well, I'll let Camila, because I have so many. Yes, yes. No, go for it. One of them was, uh, I think I was 17 or 18 years old, uh, running errands for Amateur Night, and I remember these little boys about to perform on the stage. They were known as the Jackson brothers, right? (laughs) They were introduced, they walked out, and they literally slayed the audience. Uh, We had never seen kids that talented they had that barbershop quartet type of harmony their choreography was just incredible they weren't even teenage i think michael was about eight or nine years old when i first saw the jacksons on amateur night and then when they signed up to motown i says my god we were hoping that someone would manage them and take them to another level because they were that good I remember speaking to Machine Gun Kelly when he did Amateur Night. Uh, you know, he came and said he was going to be a rapper. So I go downstairs, I'm speaking to all the amateurs, you know, wishing them well. And I said, oh, you're a rapper, huh, bro? He says, yeah, I'm a rapper. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. I says, okay. Well, you know you're at the hip-hop capital of the world, so you better be good. And he absolutely won the competition that year.
1: Yeah, Ms. Forth, what comes to mind for you if you sort of think of the broad sweep? Gosh, there's so many
2: Another two, uh, you know, moments which aren't quite performances, but I, but I, I think are significant moments is when the passing of Aretha Franklin and Michael Jackson happened. People from all over New York City and the Northeast gathered under the marquee of the Apollo Theater. We responded quickly and put speakers out front um, the second that we heard, because we knew people would gather to celebrate their life and legacy, but also to mourn collectively with community. And it, and it became right under, in front of our theater, under the marquee on 125th Street. Um, and, and so I think this is, that, that kind of really goes to show a, a bit of how we operate as a gathering place, um, as a town hall, if you will, in New York City, in Harlem, unlike any other space,
1: Mr. Mitchell, I want to ask you, you do tours of the Apollo. Are there places where you stand in the Apollo that bring you back in some way? Places where you stand, where you feel some important presence of history?
0: When I provide tours, I don't let anyone sit in the front row. And I always have to explain to people. You can start sitting in the second row and go on your way to the back. And I said, the reason why I do it because um, I feel the spirit of Duke Ellington Right over there, I, I feel the spirit of, of Ella Fitzgerald, Marvin Gaye, uh, Johnny Cash, Michael Jackson, Prince, you know. So I never let anyone sit in the front row. And I, I feel this, this energy whenever I walk in that theater. I, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know how to describe it. You know, God just puts this, this energy around me and I literally feel it. And I think I'm being protected by the people who perform there and making sure that I continue to tell their story.
1: You're not the only one. I, I saw you mentioned in one interview that some artists prefer to use the sort of older dressing rooms.
0: Yeah, we, we have, uh, you know, more up-to-date dress rooms. And a lot of the performers prefer to use the old dress because that's where the Nat King Coles got dressed. That's where the Billie holiday got dressed. That's where the Louis Armstrongs got dressed. You know, so the the Beyonces of the world want to use the old dress rooms because of all the people that also use those stress before they hit the stage.
1: I want to pull out the impact that the Apollo has had on American music more broadly. Can you speak to that? Why has the Apollo been important in the history of American music? When I think
2: about the history of American music, what sits at the core is Black music. You know, we always use this tagline that is uh, the soul of American culture. Right. Yeah. But that's quite, quite simply stated, right? And if we think about Harlem being the capital of Black America, and and, and if we think about the Apollo being the heartbeat, then we really sit at the nucleus of what is creating the culture of America. And it's a responsibility I think we take very seriously. That also means, how do we make sure that we are always being inclusive to how culture is moving and changing and shaping? We always like to say, you know, you know, we're a place where stars are born and legends are made. And, and I'm always thinking about, well, yeah, and who's up next?
0: Mr. Mitchell, is there anything you'd add to that? Well, yeah, yeah. She's talking about, you know, being inclusive. You know, just imagine uh, a, a couple of months ago, we had the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Pearl Jam at the Apollo Theater. I've witnessed uh, Bruce Springsteen at the Apollo. So these are acts that people normally may not associate with performing in Harlem at the Apollo Theater. But we are very inclusive and we celebrate all types of music. Every race, every culture, every ethnic group has been represented and expressed on the stage of the Apollo Theater. Everybody. Most people that don't know about the Apollo think that only Black people come to the Apollo Theater or perform there. And I have to let them know that everybody's invited to the party.
1: All right. Thank you both so much for joining me for this interview. It's been so great to hear about about your work and about the history of this institution.
0: It's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure.
1: Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, Please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek@history.com or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Special thanks to our guests, Camila Forbes, the Apollo Theater's executive producer, and Billy Mitchell, its historian and tour guide.
0: If anybody wants to know more about what we do at the Apollo Theater, go to our website, apollotheater.org. You can see everything that we're doing. The frequently asked questions are answered. You can also submit an audition piece to appear on Amateur Night.
1: I would love it if someone hears this interview and gets inspired to go to Amateur Night and their life changes. It's really it's exciting to think about. It,
0: it, their life <laughs> yeah. can change, and I've seen it happen personally with a lot of people. This episode was produced by Julia Press.
1: It was story edited by Jim O'Grady and sound designed by Brian Flood. History This Week is also produced by Corinne Wallace and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week.